Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about psycho-oncology with Dr. Jennifer Kilkus. Dr. Kilkus is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Jennifer, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. So I am a clinical health psychologist. Uh, I've been in practice since about 2014 and primarily worked in large health systems, helping to improve behavioral health and psychological services for cancer patients. So when we talk about psychological services, you know, I think a lot of people get a bit confused about all of the different types of people that we talk about. So we talk about social workers, we talk about psychologists, we talk about psychiatrists. Can you break it down for us and help us to understand the differences and the nuances between all of those? Absolutely. And that's a that's a great point. I often have to explain to people what's different from what I do versus what a psychiatrist does versus what a, a clinical social worker does. So a psychologist is someone uh, with a doctoral degree in psychology. So what I the shorthand I tell people is I went to school for a very long time to help learn strategies and tools uh, to assist people in managing their emotional and their physical symptoms more effectively. I don't prescribe medication. So that's a big difference between what I do versus what a psychiatrist does. And a, a psychologist can do many different things. Our degree is pretty versatile, but uh, what I use my degree to do is to focus on intervention. So for shorthand, therapy. I, I mainly provide therapy services for cancer patients using my degree. A social worker is uh, pretty similar as far as what they do. Um, they they also have a lot of variability in what they can do with their degree. A clinical social worker may provide psychotherapy services as well. They may also, uh, for example, we have clinical social workers who um, provide navigation services for our patients, help get them connected to resources. And their degree is just not quite as long as a PhD. So their degree usually runs between uh, around three years or so versus, I believe, I wrapped up finally about seven years into my doctoral program. And so when people also refer to counselors, mm -hmm. are those uh, psychologists, are those social workers, is that a different group of people altogether? Or is that just a term that's used interchangeably for people who provide counseling services as part of their scope of care? It's generally used interchangeably with psychotherapy or therapy counseling, but there are folks that have a specific degree and, and they're called licensed professional counselors. And those degrees tend to be around two to three years as well um, before you can be licensed independently to provide counseling. But uh, it seems to be that people use the term counseling interchangeable with therapy. And so, you know, here at Yale Cancer Answers, we're, we're often talking about cancer patients and their journey. Um, so talk a little bit about how, you know, mental health, which seems to be a really big topic right now, 
kind of plays into the cancer patient's journey. I mean, at the top of the show, we kind of talked about uh, in the intro, I, I said we were going to talk about psycho-oncology. So maybe you can give us a, a definition of what that is and, and how mental health uh, plays into cancer patient's journey. Sure. So psycho-oncology is a subspecialty of the field of health psychology, which is applying biological, physiological, social, and psychological understanding of disease uh, to help understand how people cope um, and also how we can use the understanding of those processes to help people change behaviors, for example, in smoking cessation um, or helping people adhere to screening recommendations. And psycho-oncology specifically is applying those behavioral and social science ideas to the challenges that cancer patients face specifically, which are many. Um, the treatments for cancer can be so challenging and harsh and taxing on the body that those things can trigger some symptoms that we would classify as mental health or vice versa. Mental health symptoms could worsen some of the challenges that come along with cancer treatments um, alongside just the general idea of, of being diagnosed with, the, the, you used to call it the big C, um, such a life-threatening and scary disease, which as you could imagine would make anybody feel fearful. Um, but the treatments also tend to compound those things and, and make that struggle a little bit more challenging. And so psycho-oncologists really focus on helping patients manage both the emotional and the physical side of cancer treatments and, and well into survivorship as well. Yeah. You know, when you were talking, it seemed to me that there's really different groups of patients that, that I could see you know, your services being uh, useful for. So there there are the patients who are well, um, who have not yet been diagnosed with the big C, but um, who may be at risk. So, you know, when you were talking about behavior modification, right, smoking cessation, we know that smoking is a key driver of many cancers, but patients may not have been diagnosed with cancer yet. And so, uh, but your services would still be helpful in helping patients to quit smoking or other lifestyle modifications. We've, we've talked on this show about obesity, for example, um, and, and getting people, you know, into the right mindset to, to adopt those healthy behaviors. So that's one group of patients. And then there's the cancer patients and then there's the survivors. So in talking about these three categories of patients, I guess, can you dive a little bit more into the strategies that you would use um, in helping the first group of patients, the patients who, you know, and I'm sure many of our listeners right now are are thinking, you know, geez, especially with the new year just around the corner, I really ought to to develop some healthier habits. I know that these habits that I currently have, overeating, not exercising, smoking, drinking, and so on and so forth, um, increase my risk of cancer, but how can I really, you know, um, help myself to set some resolutions and, and behavior modification that can help? Can you give people some tips and also tell us when they should start seeking out professional help uh, to, to make those behavior lifestyle modifications? 
Sure. So uh, we are lucky in that we have a very robust tool in our tool belt called cognitive behavioral therapy, which some may have heard of, that is really considered the gold standard in managing depression and anxiety symptoms, but has been more studied in recent years on how we can use CBT to help manage both um, those behavioral changes you're mentioning, as well as uh, emotional issues moving forward, whether whether you're talking about a cancer patient or someone who just wants to make some changes, because behavior is not something that is um, exists in isolation. Behavior also exists in response to how we think about things and how we feel about things. And so CBT focuses on the relationship between our thoughts, our behaviors, our emotions. And more recently, we, uh, research has focused on physical sensations as well. Um, an example may be if you're feeling anxious, um, people tend to have changes in their body. They, their heart may race. They may ha have difficulty with hyperventilation, which is uh, something that when it's intense enough could actually bring someone to the emergency room because they think that they may be having a heart attack. And so CBT looks at those four components and prioritizes uh, which of these things seems to be the biggest barrier for making the changes that you want to change. So one thing that I notice a lot in practice when folks want to make some kind of behavior change is they tend to go really big at first, and then they uh, inevitably end up not getting where they want to go because they may have set those goals um, too high in the beginning instead of maybe starting slow and, and just taking some time to reach their goal. And you can imagine if you've done that over and over again, you may start to have thoughts like, oh, well, what's the point? Why even bother? I can't do this. And then you may throw in the towel altogether. And so when you're meeting with someone like myself to focus on those issues, we want to know, well, what has been difficult about getting to the place where you want to go in the past. And usually it falls in one of those categories, uh, thoughts, behaviors, emotions, or physical sensations. And I would suggest for someone, um, if they're thinking about whether or not they need to work with a professional, is uh, how successful have you been in the past? And are you able to identify where you might have gotten off the path or where you wanted to go? And if you're not sure if it feels like you need someone to help work with you to set some clear goals and have some accountability and work with you on building momentum, then that might be a time to reach out to a professional for some help. And so in order to do that, how do people access uh, psychological services? Do they go through their family doctor or do people come to you just straight off the street and say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, quitting smoking. I'm interested in losing weight. How, how do people generally find psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors and social workers to help them with these um, with these behavioral modifications if they haven't been diagnosed with cancer yet? There are a lot of different avenues for that, but oftentimes people may find a provider through their insurance, um, as insurance will list uh, what services are covered and who are the providers that take your insurance. People also find me through word of mouth, so they might have a friend or a family member who had spoken to me at one point, or they may have heard me speak at a group Um People can also search um, different websites that host uh, different different uh, platforms for finding a provider. Um, for someone like myself, I'm a, a board certified 
clinical health psychologist. So I have a specialty in health. And you can search specifically for that, a board-certified clinical health psychologist through the American Board of Professional Psychology to find folks in your state that have that designation and would likely uh, be more able to help in the realm of health change. Great information. All right, let's look at the second category. So the newly diagnosed cancer patient, you you can imagine that, you know, when you've been given that diagnosis, your world kind of turns upside down and it's not uncommon for people to A, have anxiety, but um, B, it may also turn people into, you know, depression. Some people may turn to substance abuse. Uh, They may have issues in terms of relationships, especially because it's not just the patient going through that diagnosis. Uh, It also affects family, workplaces, and so on and so forth. How do you manage dealing with all of that um, when patients are newly diagnosed with cancer? It is a lot. It is. And and if you think about it, it really does affect almost every aspect of someone's life. Maybe not everyone all of the time, but even things like work. If somebody's so sick that they can't make it to work anymore, then they might start having financial problems. Um, Maybe they can't perform the same roles that they did in their household, and that might lead to some some relationship conflict. Um, Then not to mention the physiological aspects of of the cancer treatment itself. So um, there are a lot of different ways that folks can struggle through this process. And, um, and, and really, I, I keep coming back to CBT because it's just such a handy tool because it's such a big umbrella. And there's so many different things that we can do with that. But again, we can break down what are the challenges? Are they controllable or uncontrollable? If they're controllable, we might problem solve or help resolve some of the barriers in that way of looking at what are concrete steps that someone could take. Or if it's uncontrollable, then we look at managing the emotion and maybe helping choose coping strategies that are more helpful, like substance abuse. Um, Those kinds of things tend to help really well in the short term, and that's why people do them, but they're not the best for long-term coping or for long-term health. And so we can help someone just to get the big picture of what are the biggest issues and prioritizing the ones that are most important, starting with that controllable, uncontrollable framework, and then using the tools that CBT provides us to help get more specific. Well, we'll talk a lot more about what things people can do from a practical standpoint right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about psycho-oncology with my guest, Dr. Jennifer Kilkis. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where physicians collaborate with diagnostic and interventional radiologists, gastroenterologists, and pathologists to provide expert care for patients with pancreatic cancer. YaleCancerCenter.org slash GI. Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. 
Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jennifer Kilkis. We're learning about her work in the field of psycho-oncology. And right before the break, Jennifer, you were telling us about, you know, the role that psycho-oncology can play for a cancer patient um, whose world may have been just shattered with a new diagnosis, who may be facing anxiety, who may be facing issues of depression or substance abuse, who may have issues in their workplace or in their relationships. And I'm just wondering a few things. So first of all, does every patient, every cancer patient need a psycho-oncologist? Is that something that they should be talking to their oncologist about? Or is it only the patients who are really struggling with that diagnosis that should be asking for that service? I would say that no, um, it's actually surprising that many cancer patients are able to cope just fine with the resources that they have available in their community. So they may have a really strong social support network, or they may already have a provider in the community. And um, we estimate somewhere around 30 to 40% of patients may uh, meet criteria for a major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder at some point throughout their diagnosis and their treatment, depending on which measures we're using and which researcher we're asking. But, but for the most part, many patients tend to cope very well, um, despite how challenging this can be. Um, so I would say um, for patients who really feel like these symptoms are persisting and they're really finding it hard to get by with their day-to-day activities because of their symptoms, that would be a good time to talk to your oncologist about connecting with someone for some help. You know, the other thing that strikes me is that very much like we've seen with mental health in general, it seems to be something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. They don't want to admit. They oftentimes feel like they may be perceived as being, quote, weak if they admit that they're struggling to cope. Um, How do you get over that? What advice do you have for people to broach that subject with their physician so that they can start getting some help? I am so glad that you brought that up because if I had a number one soapbox issue, it would be the messaging that we get, not just with cancer, but in our culture as a whole about those narratives of having to be strong and struggle through things. And those types of narratives really make it difficult for people to acknowledge that they may be struggling and reach out for help because the message that they get everywhere that they look is that that is somehow wrong or that you're failing in some way if that's the case. But the reality is, is that most people struggle with this and that's what's more normal. It's more normal to struggle and to have difficulty with challenging situations in our lives. And we don't often give people an opportunity to have that witness. And so if, if there are folks listening who have struggled with that, I would just encourage you to, to, um, question where that came from. And if you would have the same types of expectations for somebody that you cared about in your life that you have for yourself, because oftentimes we're very challenging, uh, we're very hard on ourselves in, in a way that we wouldn't be for other people. And 
I think that, of course, as a psychologist, this is easy for me to say, but I think that asking for help is the biggest sign of strength because you're acknowledging that that this is something that you can't manage on your own and that's risky. It's vulnerable. And so it's possible to feel that and still ask for help anyway. It's possible to push through that. And in speaking with an oncologist, all of them have seen people struggling at different points of their diagnosis. This is their day to day. And so it's not a surprise. Um, and if you do even just a little bit of research, if you just Google, say, cancer and anxiety or cancer and stress, you'll see how common it is and how common it is to ask for help and, and how many different avenues there may be out there for support. Yeah, I, I think the one key message for people, whether you've been diagnosed with cancer or not, is that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to say, I'm not okay. And I could really use some help. And And the good news is, is that help is out there. But sometimes that help needs to be asked for because people don't have ESP, right? So, so you need to kind of take that step. And I agree with you. It, it's a, it's a vulnerable step, right? But it's okay to say, I'm not okay. Um, and I think more and more people now are realizing that. And so I hope that that message, uh, gets across. But the other thing I think that is really helpful is for people to understand in a practical and pragmatic way, what is the benefit of seeing a mental health provider, whether it's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counselor, a social worker, whatever. Can you provide us like some tangible benefits that you get? Because some people may be thinking, okay, but like, what are, what are they going to do? I mm-hmm. mean, we're going to talk about my childhood or something. And I think that there's a lot of misperceptions about what exactly you do and what are the tangible benefits of working with a counselor or a mental health professional to kind of cope with either the physical symptoms or the psychological symptoms or simply to get through the day and cope with all of the peripheral things that are happening with you in terms of relationships at home, at work, um, and so on. Right. And and I've heard all of those things and, and more when I meet someone for the first time. So they have gotten over that hump of, okay, I'm going to make an appointment. I'm going to go to the appointment, but what do we do now? Uh, and there is a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about what psychologists and counselors and social workers do. There are some that focus on understanding how your childhood shaped who you are today. Um, when we're dealing with something like cancer and something that's very here and now, we're focused on what tools are the most useful for helping improve your symptoms and helping improve your quality of life. And so to use an example that I see often, fatigue is one of the biggest challenges that cancer patients experience as they're going through their treatment and well beyond when their treatment is completed. And if we're using looking at how CBT, a very skills-based and present moment focused approach could help with that. Um, I would work with someone on identifying what behaviors might be continuing that cycle of fatigue. Um, and oftentimes with fatigue comes depression. And, and when we feel depressed or when we feel like we can't do the things we used to do, a lot of people tend to withdraw. And so they may struggle to do the activities that used to bring them pleasure or feel meaningful to them. Or they may be spending a lot of time in bed or on the couch. Um, and those things, unfortunately, 
they tend to make both fatigue and depression worse. So we might focus on how can we gradually increase activity over time and in a way that balances both energy um, and mood. So paying attention to what things have the biggest bang for the buck for improving mood and energy and building up slowly over time. Again, so we don't get into a cycle where we're doing too much and then the bottom drops out and and we just give up because it's it's too difficult. And so you can see how that one in that scenario, I'm not providing advice. Uh, I'm also not talking about anybody's childhood. I'm suggesting skills and strategies that are focused on the problem at hand and what could actually be done to help improve things over time. Yeah, I, I think that's so that's so important. And it really is, you know, kind of tangible advice, like guidance, just like a, a coach, um, you know, when you're you're a kid and you're playing Little League or or you're learning the piano, you, you always have a teacher or a coach who's trying to make you better and and give you those tips, those skills um, that will help you um, in, in improving whatever it is you're trying to improve. And I think working with a, a mental health professional in that way uh, may be provide you those same kinds of skill sets that will help you to overcome the challenges that come with that. I think the other piece, though, is the emotional piece and, you know, dealing with just the huge array of emotions that you get with a cancer diagnosis. And for some people, I think that so much can compound um, one thing on top of another thing on top of another thing. and. You know, there are cases where, you know, people can actually get kind of suicidal um, with all of the things building up, leading to outcomes that really didn't need to happen. Um, so talk a little bit about how people can overcome some of the emotional baggage and all of the things that just seem to layer on when they're going through a cancer journey where, you know, sometimes it just feels like there's a tiny straw that can break the camel's back. Right. And I think that's exactly what happens. And I often talk to people about that, that these aren't as if we're dealing with each stressor individually. They do become something different when they compound like that and, and they become something bigger and more, more difficult to manage. But I think the strategy is the same as teasing apart all those different pieces that are tangled up and looking at them one by one and how they interact with each other. And so it, it may be that someone it, like the example that I mentioned before uh, comes with more behaviorally uh, motivated symptoms where they're having a hard time connecting with people and they've withdrawn. And uh, it may be that somebody is coming to me with more symptoms that are more driven by the thoughts that they have, like this is hopeless or I'm never going to get past this. And so we would just take those pieces one at a time and address them as they come. And oftentimes they have a downstream effect. So once you can start getting some distance from thoughts and thinking about them in a more uh, objective or balanced way, then it may become easier to do some of the things behaviorally that might also help you feel better and vice versa. Um, and so it's it's not, I wouldn't say a, a simple process or, or maybe it is a simple process, but not an easy one. But that's why it's it's helpful to have someone like a coach. And, and that's why I often think of myself like a coach or like a teacher to help observe those things and help point out where can we start 
so that we can have the most success the quickest and then go from there. Yeah, I I think that that's so key is that oftentimes when you're feeling overwhelmed, like it's just one thing on top of another thing on top of another thing on top of another thing, it's sometimes helpful to have an objective lens, um, an outside person to kind of break things down for you into little pieces and to give you some skills to understand how you can deal with each of the little pieces. It, It might be more manageable than trying to deal with the overwhelm of many things all compounded at once. Right. And and actually, if we look at what happens physiologically and neurologically when we become overwhelmed, it's actually really difficult to do that for ourselves because our frontal lobe is really what helps us think through things clearly and problem solve and to sort through things and organize for ourselves. And when we're feeling very emotional, that part of our brain isn't activated as much. Instead, the part of our brain that houses our emotion, our amygdala is really an overdrive in our sympathetic nervous system. That's our fight or flight response. That's what our body does when we're in danger, thinks we're in danger, really takes over and it becomes very challenging to think clearly. And that's part of the reason why it's so helpful to have someone outside to be able to objectively help guide you through those things. Dr. Jennifer Kilkis is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.